Good morning. It's exciting to be here with you all. And today I'm going to be talking to you guys about the kind of first major section of the Peaceful Practices Guide thingy on curiosity. Curiosity is a tough choice to make for us as adults. In the passage, they talk about, oh, like kids, kids often like have this sense of curiosity about what's happening in the world or about things that they see and experience in front of them. But I actually think curiosity is a, is a really intentional posture that I need to take. And it's not always easy and it's not always my preferred choice. Curiosity isn't just about inviting all the different opinions to the table and allowing them equal value, but it really is about looking at the other people around the table, regardless of their opinion, and holding that person with value, working to start interactions rooted in empathy and not immediate judgment. Every story we see and interact with comes with its own context and life experiences. Hearts and minds are never changed because one side's declaration of truth at the other. Hearts and minds are changed because stories of others are revealed and the Holy Spirit is allowed to work throughout. In organizing, we have a saying that says the first revolution is internal. This means that at some point, every person, there was an internal revolution that awakened your heart and mind to a new way of thinking. A posture of curiosity opens the door for this revolution and creates ways for people who we once saw as other to be seen as kin. I think this story in Luke is a really important moment in scripture that has a ton to teach us. On its surface, it's a classic story of healing, a rebuke of a religious leader, Jesus is right, the world is better. However, I love that this story gives us a chance to reflect on the experiences of this day from so many different perspectives. So I wanna start with the woman. We actually don't know much about this woman other than a vague description of her ailments and a surprisingly specific length of her suffering. It's easy for us to take this story and file it away with other healing miracles and miss out on the fact that this story is a really big deal to her. So let's think about her. This is the face of a woman who has lived in the shadows of the world for 18 long years. And on this day, this Sabbath, in this synagogue, she gets brought back to life. She could easily be lost as merely a good illustration for whatever Jesus is teaching. She's actually a, a very fitting illustration for what Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in chapter four, where he recites, recites Isaiah and says that he has been anointed to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release for the captives, recover sight to the blind, and let the oppressed go free. But she is so much more than a good illustration. She is a daughter of Abraham, made in God's image, a beloved creation who must be summoned from the shadows and brought to light. The scripture tells us that this woman appeared in the synagogue. Before this moment, she was invisible. 
the laws of the synagogue and the culture of her world would have left her unseen by those around her. Luke isn't terribly concerned with the specifics of her disease, only that her lowly posture leaves her bent over and stooped down below others. If her ailment were attributed to some sort of evil spirit or demonic possession, as Luke seems to indicate, she would certainly not be permitted to live life alongside those who are healthy. This woman probably could not work, could not marry, would have been pushed into the margins even by the most religious who are trained and assigned to uphold the laws of God. And it's sadly appropriate that Luke leaves her nameless for this is representative of her worth in the eyes of others. Her stature is symbolic of her social position and it's a reality that this social position which drives Jesus's compassion. To the world, she is invisible, but Jesus sees her. He looks up from his teaching, despite all the cultural norms that tell him to keep teaching, ignore her, or chastise her. He says, woman, daughter, I see you, and today you are free. The good news that Jesus comes to bring to this woman is that she will not only be restored to health, but she will no longer be subject to oppressive cultural norms that have pushed her to the side and left her worthless. Jesus's healing of her has not only restored her body, but given her life again. My curiosity about this woman has me asking questions like, I really wonder what her life has been like. What could have motivated her to come into a place where she's likely not welcome? And what kind of courage and bravery that would have taken? I wonder what her morning was like. I wonder what it was like for her when she woke up that morning before she got to the synagogue. I bet people see her as disruptive. And I wonder what that feels like. So now we're going to talk about the synagogue leader. The synagogue leader, this poor guy, in an effort to do his job, has fallen into the role of the bad guy in this passage and throughout the Gospels. That's how I was taught to read this from when I was a kid. The reality is that for Luke... The synagogue leaders are not evil. They are simply pious members of the faith community who believe they have the best intentions. And sometimes we might think they're misguided. The synagogue leader is responsible for keeping the community faithful to God's law. And if it's one thing that God's law is very clear about, it's the Sabbath. The Sabbath is one of the most critical elements of the Jewish faith, especially during the first century. It is a sign of the covenant to God's people and designed to be an imitation of God himself. God worked for six days during creation, and on the final day, after its completion, God rested. And God's command is very clear. Obey my voice, follow my commands. In Exodus 31, it is written that the Israelites should keep the Sabbath as a sign between God and God's people. 
the exile and the suffering, which the Israelites experienced, was understood as the result of disobedience. When the exile ended and the temple was rebuilt, the specifics of God's law became a priority for the people in an effort to prevent future punishment. The Sabbath was designed to be a sign of the covenant that God made with God's people after their release from captivity. The synagogue leader is not completely off base when he reminds the crowd that there are six days for work and one day for rest. And it actually seems logical that this woman could come back the next day. Her condition is clearly not life-threatening. She's been sick for 18 years. What's one more day? So we should not fall into the temptation of demonizing this man. But our challenge today is to approach him with curiosity. Why does he have such a rigid understanding of the Sabbath? What was he taught? Who were his mentors? What was it like for him when Jesus calls this woman a daughter of Abraham? We're told at the end of the story that he leaves in shame. And shame is such a specific feeling. For me, shame is something I feel when I know I was wrong, but I don't want to tell anybody. Right? So I wonder what that feels like. I wonder what's going on in him that would result in him feeling shame. And I wonder what he did with that feeling. We don't know. In the same way, when Jesus rebukes the rich man and tells him to give all his money away, we don't actually know what that guy did. We just know that he's sad. So I want us to just sit with that and with the synagogue ruler for a moment. So the next perspective that I think we consider in this is Jesus. Jesus does see her life as threatened. He sees the way the restrictive laws and cultural expectations have robbed this woman of life. They have robbed her of dignity for 18 long years. Her condition is life-threatening. As the synagogue leader reminds the crowd it's necessary to work on six days and rest on the seventh, Jesus says what is necessary is that this woman, this beautiful creation of God, be set free from the bondage that they have actually created. Jesus is not in the synagogue as a rebel or to be disruptive in this situation. Sometimes he is. He's there because he's a Jewish man. And God's laws are important. He's there to remind the Jewish people what God truly desires for them. The greatest commandment is to love God and love others. Love God and keep God's commandments. But love others and have compassion for those who are lowest. This is God's law. This is the good news. This is the gospel. So finally, we hear this story from the perspective of the crowd. There's a whole group of people there watching this happen. 
all of these people just showed up for their normal week-to-week gathering. And I wonder what it was like for them to witness the exchange between Jesus and this woman and the synagogue ruler. The story tells us that, that maybe some of them also joined the synagogue leader in shame. I think this might be the group that I personally relate to the most. How do I react when I'm given a chance to witness the restoration of someone's life? Do I publicly stand against the status quo and celebrate? Or am I quiet in the shadows trying to avoid conflict? I don't know how big this crowd was. Maybe it was eight people, maybe it was a hundred people. Either way, the curiosity I have is, I wonder what it's like to recognize when you're seeing life restored and have the courage to rejoice. Everyone in this story is disruptive to each other. The task of reading this with curiosity is sitting in that. Everyone feels both disruptive and disrupted. I'm sure some people are asking, why is this woman here today? This is complicated. People are probably asking, why is Jesus violating the law? It's a lot easier if people just sit quietly. Why won't the synagogue leader rejoice with us if he's a person of God? And why is the crowd siding with Jesus in this story? So I will just say that this story is not simply about inviting a diversity of opinions and valuing all of them equally and then agreeing to disagree. That's not what happens in this story. And that's not what Jesus has come to do. So another thing that in community organizing, we say change requires tension. There is certainly tension and conflict brewing between Jesus and the synagogue leader in the way that they understand life and the law. But this is also an example of where the perspective of one person the person in power, results in the social captivity of another. The woman in the synagogue, a beloved daughter of Abraham, has become subject to this captivity while maintaining specific commands that have become a priority over her life. Jesus's rebuke to the religious leaders is harsh but true. Jesus always stands on the side of the oppressed, and the gospel is about bringing good news to them. The woman's posture has gone from that which was unseen to one that is now seen. She is now not only seen by Jesus, but the healing of her ailment has allowed her to be seen by the world. We can stand firmly on the side of the oppressed and fight for restoration while entering into dialogue with curiosity and empathy of everyone's perspective and experience. So the challenge we face in our world is how we lean into the peaceful practice of curiosity while not allowing injustice to persist in our efforts for peaceful dialogue. I'm gonna close with a quote from the, the Peaceful Practices Workbook 
says, in bringing curiosity, we are willing to have something be shook up, to introduce chaos into how we see the world. To get there, we need exposure to other ways of being, doing, thinking, and believing. This means searching out relationships with people who think, look, and experience life differently than we do. It means engaging in our conflicts because they teach us to sit in the uncomfortable place of difference. Going deep into our conflicts and other differences rather than running away from them gives us a chance to do that. So it's in the middle of conflict and chaos that transformation comes because that's where the spirit enters.